Daniel, Joy, please take your Bibles, if you will, and turn with me to the book of Ephesians tonight, please, Ephesians chapter 6, Ephesians 6, last Sunday night in our study of Ephesians, I plan to preach the message found in verses uh, 5 through 9 of chapter 6, God's message to Christian servants, slaves, and also his message to Christian masters. A message regarding their responsibilities to him. To him, to God, and of course their responsibilities toward each other. Because I ran out of time, I only got through verse 8, the message to Christian servants. We did not get to verse 9, the message to masters. And I don't want to go through that uh, verses 5 through 8 in detail tonight, but just to be a good reminder, it will tie in with the last part of the message also. But we saw in that passage that God gave eight specific responsibilities that the Christian servant was to fulfill in his relationship with his master. And I suggested again uh, to you that as you think about this passage of Scripture regarding servants, that you think of the employee and his responsibilities toward the employer. And tonight, then, as we look at the master, think about the relationship of the master toward his, or the uh, employer toward the employee. So we saw last Sunday night, if you just kind of want to follow along, I'll take them right in order in the verses, beginning at verse 5, eight responsibilities of Christian servants. Number one, he was to be submissive to and obedient to his master. He was to listen to his master with the determination to do everything that he was commanded to do. Number two, he was to obey his master with fear and trembling. Meaning by that, he was supposed to have tremendous respect for his master. But along with that, we believe the possible meaning here is also that he should fear even himself, thinking, you know, this is not going to be easy for me to do. I need to, I need to work at this to be diligent in obeying my master and being submissive to him. Number three, the Christian servant was to obey his master in singleness of heart. 
That means he was to keep his mind off himself. He was to be determined that he would obey his master with absolute sincerity and with an undivided heart. Number four, he was to obey his master, and this was the key, I think, to the whole passage. He was to obey his master as he would obey Christ. That's the key here to being the right kind of servant. To keep your mind, again, off yourself. Keep your mind even off your master. But keep your mind, put your focus on the Lord. And let the Lord be our focus. Let the Lord be the focus of our attitudes, our words, our actions, everything about us. And God says, especially would that be important for a Christian sermon. Number five, he was to remember, excuse me, that was yeah, number five. He was, to not, he was not to obey his master with eye service as men pleasers. He was not to just do his job and work hard when he knew the master was watching, but when the master wasn't watching, he would loaf. He was not to do that. He was to remember that as a Christian servant, he was a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ who was watching all the time. Number six, he was to remember that obeying his master, doing what he was doing, he was, it was the will of God for his life. And, and you should remember that whoever you are, whatever you're doing right now, just be certain. Is that God's will for your life? Is it is? If it is, then you do it as unto the Lord. So he said, God says, listen, remember, servant, the important thing is you do whatever you do, remembering that you were in my will. Number seven, he was to show his master kindness as he obeyed and served him. Not just obey him, but not wanting to, but he was to do everything that he could to be a kind servant, to show kindness unto his master, even if he didn't think his master deserved it. And again, the focus there in the verses, he's doing service unto the Lord more than to his master. And then number eight, he was to remember that the Lord would reward him as he submitted to his master and as he obeyed him. He said, God will reward you. Even if his master never even said thank you, that's not the issue. You do what you do as unto me. And God says, remember, I will reward you. And then we saw in a parallel passage in, in Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, we saw that the, when the Christian servant obeys his master and submits to him, does what he's supposed to do with the right attitude, he adorns the doctrine of Christ. He, he, he enriches his testimony and uh, is able to lead perhaps his master or others in the household or friends, whoever, to the Lord by his testimony of being a submissive servant. Now, what about the master? What about the master? I should have mentioned one more thing because this ties in also with master tonight in fulfilling the responsibilities the Christian servant would have to remember that if he's going to do this, he's going to have to have the power of the Holy Spirit especially if he did not have a super kind master, especially if his master was not a Christian. He's going to have to say, Heavenly Father, this is not easy, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I have your Holy Spirit within my body, and I know that if I do what I want to do, if I do my own thing, this is not going to work, but would you fill me? Would you control me? That is the passage here because this all started. This is part of the message here because this all started back in chapter 5, verse 18. Remember, be not drunk with wine when it's excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And everything that follows is really the result of being spirit-filled. Now let's look at the masters tonight. What message does God have for the masters of the servants? And I believe that surely the masters here spoken of or spoken to were Christian masters. This, this epistle was written to believers, not non-believers. God has no written message for unsaved masters that we know about. And we know that God says to the masters, we'll look at later, that he is also to remember that he has a master in heaven. Surely this speaks to a Christian master. As we look at our, uh, at our text tonight, and 
And um, as we think again about our world today and how we can apply this to ourselves, I would say what I said earlier now regarding the servants, this would now be true of the masters, that it would be a good for you. If you are in a, some position where you are in charge, if you are an employer and you have employees under you, if you're in some place of leadership where you have people under you, this is a very good passage to remember, to look at as we see what God says to masters. God does not command the masters. He, does, he doesn't even suggest that they release their slaves. As we mentioned last week, the Bible does not speak out against slavery. It doesn't advocate slavery. It doesn't push or promote slavery. But God simply tells Christian masters how they're supposed to behave toward their slaves. And God tells the slave as a Christian how he is supposed to respond toward his master. God does not suggest here that, that the, he doesn't say, okay, seeing you're a master and seeing you're a Christian, you release all your slaves. He doesn't do that. He just tells them how to treat their servants and why they should treat them that way. First of all, would you look, please? Let's read verse 9. And ye masters, do the same things unto them, forbearing threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is there respect of persons with him. First of all, he says, do the same things unto them. What does that mean? Do the same things. And you masters, do the same things unto them. As you read this passage, I think it's pretty obvious. The same things here, do the same things, refers to their, their treatment of their, of their servants. They're supposed to treat their servants with the same consideration, with the same respect, with the same principles that their slaves were showing to them. And really, this is, again, in this whole passage of Scripture, because what you have here is mutual submission. Remember back in 518, as we quoted earlier, be not drunk with wine when it's excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And then God gives in the following verses. In fact, that's kind of like the introduction to this whole passage all the way through the end of chapter 6, uh, verse 9, where God says there are some results then, there are some, there are some things that you will experience if you're Spirit-filled. Back in chapter 5, he says in verse um, 19, you're going to speak to yourselves in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You're going to be singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord. Verse 20, he says you're going to be giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 21, listen to this, now submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. And that becomes the theme that goes all the way through chapter 6, verse 9, mutual submission. And that's the result of being filled with the Spirit. So he begins by saying, wives, you submit yourself to your husband. Remember, we preached on that. Then he turns around and says, husbands, you love your wife, but there's mutual submission here because you do whatever it takes to meet her needs. Then God says to children, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your mother and your father. So he says, be submissive to your parents. But then he says to fathers, hey, listen, don't just boss your children around and make them miserable. No, you be submissive to them and don't provoke them to wrath. You look out for their needs and you meet their needs. And he says, you keep your children in mind and you you do whatever it takes to be a godly, good father to your parents. And then he says to slaves, you be submissive to your parents, uh, to your masters, and you obey them. Now, there's only one group left, and that's masters. And God says, don't, don't, don't treat your slaves wrongly. Don't be harsh with them. You treat them like they're supposed to treat you. You look after their needs. You meet their needs. We have mutual submission here. Number two, if you would please to no, no, uh, tonight, notice please, and ye masters do the same things unto them, dis, for, forbearing, threatening. Forbearing. What does that mean? Letting up. Holding back. Slackening. Those are all good definitions, explanations of the word forbearing. To, to let up, to hold back, to slacken. In making your threats to them. So don't be... 
don't be operating things like saying, listen, listen, sir, keep your now. Do you understand what I'm saying? Now, now look at me. <laughs> look at me now. You do what I tell you to do, and you do exactly what I tell you to do, and you do it right away when I tell you to do it, and then you add two words, or else, or else. Now, my, my dad and mom, they didn't have to add or else with me. That was assumed. <laughs> I, learned, I learned early in life as a young boy, when my mom and dad tell me to do something, I need to do it. Do what they said, do when they, when they said to do it. I mean, to get it done because it was in my best interest to submit and obey. I learned that really early. It made the rest of my day a lot happier, okay? So my dad and mom didn't have to say, now listen, you do this or else, and I constantly lived under this kind of threat. No, and God says to masters, don't, don't operate like that. Don't run things like that. You hold back. You forbear threatening. Don't always throw this or else where every time a slave is doing anything in his eye, in his mind's eye, he sees, he sees your whip hanging over him. He always thinks about the what else, the threatening. God says don't do that. Rule by reasonables, reasonableness. Be reasonable. Rule by love. Rule by kindness rather than harsh threats and cruel punishments. There's a parallel passage here for a third thing that masters should do. Well, you, well, you're going to come right back here, but go to Colossians chapter 4. We've been in Colossians before as we've preached to wives, as we preach to husbands, as we preach to uh, children, as we preach to uh, servants. You might remember this started back in chapter 3, verse, uh, didn't start here, but with servants and masters, it started in verse 22. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. Not with eye service or men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. For what and whatsoever you do, do it heartily, as to the Lord, not unto men, knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance. For you serve the Lord Christ. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done. There is no respect of persons with God. And then look at the very next verse, the first verse of chapter six. Excuse me, of chapter four, masters. Give unto your servants that which is just and equal. Knowing that you also have a master in heaven. That's the parallel passage in Colossians to go with Ephesians. Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal. Knowing that you also have a master in heaven. The meaning here is be fair. Be fair with your labors. Pay them what they deserve. Don't rip them off. Don't steal from them. Be just. Where just here means right. Do that which is right. Be equal. Fair and impartial. Equal. So make sure that you treat your servants right. Give them what they deserve. Give them what they have coming to them. Would you go please to James chapter 5? James chapter 5. I can't read the passage in Ephesians and the passage there in Colossians without thinking of the passage in James chapter 5. I think you'll see a parallel here, but he takes it from the other side. Go to now, ye rich men, weep and howl for the miseries that shall come upon you. I think he's speaking especially to, to homeowners, to Slave owners, to those in positions of leadership, um, we would say CEOs and so forth, okay? 
says, go to now, ye rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered. And the rust of them shall be a witness against you and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. You have heaped treasure together for the last days. You say, what's this all about? These men were wealthy men, but part of their wealth came because they were not treating people fairly who were working for them. Verse 4, Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by, next word please, fraud. Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you been kept back by fraud. Listen, it, it crieth. And the cries of them which have the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. You have lived in pleasure on earth and been wanton. You have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. What's the message here? You have not treated your employees fairly. Every time I read this, and I know I've mentioned this sometime in my years here, but I regret so badly a terrible attitude I had when I was probably, probably no less than eight, but no more than ten, somewhere between eight and ten years old. I, I wasn't even going to share this again, but I, as I'm lo- looking over the messages tonight, I thought, you know what, you, you got it. This, this is just so much on my mind. My, my mom was having a baby about every year, Okay. I mean, it was like almost like one after the other. And then, and usually because as the family grew, and by the way, they didn't go have a baby in those days and come home a day later. They were in the hospital for at least a week, usually a week to 10 days. It was a long time. And so with all these kids, what's my dad going to do? He's got to go to work. He can't take care of the rest of the kids. So all the kids go out to somebody's house for, for a week or 10 days, whatever it was. And I went out to Uncle Martin and Geraldine. They lived, oh, probably 20 miles north of our home in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And they had a huge muck farm. You say, what, I don't know what muck is. Black dirt. And man, I mean, stuff would really grow on that. And their main thing was onions. They had a huge onion farm. And I went to stay with Uncle Martin and Aunt Geraldine for a long time. Probably not just while Mom was in the hospital, but even after she got home. They fed me. They took me to the store and bought things for me. Uh, they did so many nice things for me. And they let me work for them. They had all these people out there, and they were topping onions. How many of you have topped onions? I didn't think so. Once you do it, you never forget it. You pull the onions out of the ground, and you cut them off at a certain place, and the onions fall in these big old crates, and you go on, and you're on your knees all day long, crawling in the mud, topping onions. And you get paid by the crate. So at the end of the week, all the employees lined up, and there's my name was my nickname was Butch. There's Butch. I'm in line with all these other people. And uh, Aunt Geraldine, she's the secretary treasurer, you know. And she's sitting at this little table in this room off to the side of the kitchen there. And all the employees come through and they get all their money for all the work they've done that week, depending on how, based on how many crates of onions they topped. I was at the end of the line, and I saw all these people ahead of me get all this money. And then I was last, and I came up, and Geraldine looked at a little piece of paper there, and she gave me some money, and in my mind, it was not enough. 
I don't know what I was expecting. I guess I was expecting a whole lot more like all these people. You know, I was 8 to 10 years old. You know, these were, you know, teenagers, college-age people, adults. I mean, they were doing this. I mean, I, and I'm sure, looking back, I'm sure I didn't top as many onions as they did, but I thought I did. And she gave me, she gave me my pay. And I looked at her and I said, that's not fair. That is not right. She said, yeah, Butch, this, this is what you've earned. I said, no, ma'am, you're wrong. You're wrong. I probably didn't even call her ma'am. I said, no, ma'am, you're wrong. I mean, a lot more than that. I mean, that's, this, is, this is not fair. And, and she said, no, really, Larry, Butch, I mean, it's, 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 it's okay. This is what I said. No, you're cheating me is what you're doing. You're cheating me. <laughs> no, no, I'm looking. I think, Larry, you didn't. Yes, yeah, what I did. And she, and she just, and finally she started crying. I didn't even back off. I, thought you, I didn't say this. I thought, you can cry if you want to, but I got, I, got to get what de- I got to get what I deserve here, you know. She said, no, Larry, I'm being fair, Butch. I'm being fair, really. This is what I said. No, you're not. You're cheating me, Aunt Geraldine. You're cheating. And I'm thinking, no, nah, what a jerk. Have you ever done anything, come on, folks, that you've been ashamed about when you were a little kid? Jeff's got his hand up. He's the only one. Oh, there's a few others here. A few other honest people here tonight, okay? And I have felt, every time I've thought about that, I've thought, what an idiot, what a fool, what a moron, how ungrateful, what an ungrateful wretch you were. I shouldn't have gotten any pay. I mean, what they just letting me stay at their house and all the other things they did for me, that, that should have been, I should have said, what can I do for you today? But I wasn't thinking about it. I was convinced that she was ripping me off and cheating me. Now, God says here in James chapter 5, now that really is happening in some of these farms. You got people that are working hard for you. And you're not treating them fairly. You're not giving them what you agreed to pay them. Or you're going to say, well, we'll pay you next week if we have any money. And so God says, no, don't be doing that. Now go, if you will, back to Ephesians 6. Because that is in, and that's in the message there in Colossians and also in, in Ephesians. He says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9, And ye masters, do the same things unto them, forbearing, threatening, when that your master also in heaven, neither is their respect of persons. Well, I'm sorry, it's in Colossians where he says, look, you treat them fairly. Be just and fair. Pay them what they deserve. And then number four, the masters were continued to, re, they, they were continued to remind themselves that they also had a master in heaven. And ye masters, do the same things unto them, forbearing, threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven. Same thing we saw back there in Colossians. Same theme in all of these, regarding all these relationships. Wives, you, you obey your husbands. You remember that your, your, your husband is your head, even as Christ is the head of the church. And just like the church is submissive to Christ, then you be submissive to your husband. So keep your mind on Christ. And you husbands, love your wives, how much? Even as Christ loved the church and gave himself. So you love your wife. And if you think that's difficult sometimes, just remember, hey, listen, you love her like Christ loved you. That's, that's, that's the most powerful love you can imagine. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. For this is right in Colossians. Children, obey your parents in all things. For this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. You fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture, the admonition of the Lord. Servants, obey your masters with your eye on the Lord. I mean, to everybody, he says, look... Keep your eye off yourself. Keep your eye, so to speak, your focus off the other person. Make sure you keep your focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. And it will be a lot easier for you to do, to do what you're supposed to do. He says, masters, that's you too. Just remember, you have a master in heaven. Jesus Christ always treats his servants graciously. Amen? He treats his servants kindly. He treats us justly. He loves us. 
He gives us what we need. And so we have the same message here. Look, keep your eyes upon the Lord. And then he says, there is, there, where neither is there any respect of persons with him. I like to think of it this way. God is the master of both the slave and the master. Also, the master and the slave are both the servants of God. God is no respecter of persons. He treats everyone alike. He doesn't show partiality. He's absolutely impartial. And God says, masters, you do the same. Treat your servants all alike. Don't play favorites. The same God who will reward the slave for being submissive to his master. God will reward that. We've already studied that. We said that last week. God will always reward the servant who is obedient to and submits to his master. That same God is impartial. He's not biased. He's fair all the time. He also, God says, will reward the master as he treats his slave as he should. Why? Because God is faithful and just and plays no favorites. And then I want to mention one more thing. We've already mentioned this tonight regarding the servants. But again, it takes right back to 518 and be not, and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Every master needs to remember, if I'm going to be, every CEO, every boss, every manager, every employee needs to remember, if I'm going to be the right kind of leader, if I'm going to do my job like I'm supposed to do it, I better remember that in myself, I could fail. I could, for a whole lot of reasons, I could really come short. But I, but I have within me God's Holy Spirit. And He can fill me. He wants to. He wants to control me. He can, he can dominate my thinking, my attitude, my words, my actions. I, I need him. I need him to help me be a good boss. I need him to help me be the right kind of in-charge person. It's God's message to masters. And ye masters, do the same things unto them, forbearing threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is there respect of persons with him. Now, in my notes, this is what I wrote. I wrote, now we go on to the next section in this letter to the church. The church at Ephesus, verses 10 through 18. And by the way, I was planning to do exactly that. And then sometime during the week, in fact, again, while I was having my devotions, while I was reading a book that I'm reading for my own benefit, while I'm thinking and working on this passage here in Masters, in Ephesians, on Masters and their relationship with their slaves, another thought came to my mind. In fact, I read something in this book I thought, I, that, that absolutely share, that ties in with this message so well and it is so desperately needed today amongst God's people. Whatever time we have left after we finish the short section here, the verse on Masters, Why don't I say a few words about something I think would be a tremendous help to our people. I, I brought a little book along tonight. It's an old book. It was, it's put out by Moody Press. It was written in 1950. How many were alive in 1950? Would you stand up, please? Can, can you move? I know you've been sitting there a long time, but how many were alive in 1950? Are you serious? Only, oh, here, here you go. A couple more in the back. Okay, good. 1950. I was six years old in 1950 when this book was written. 
I used to hear this man preach on the radio. My mom always listened to Back to the Bible broadcast every day. Lincoln, Nebraska, Dr. Theodore Epp. And he had two preachers on there regularly. One was Ord Morrow. He would preach oftentimes on Friday. But on Monday, he had G. Christian Weiss always preached on the broadcast on Monday. And he was the, the voice of missions of this ministry. can't think of the name, and I'm sorry. Back to the Bible broadcast. And he wrote this little book entitled The Perfect Will of God. I've had this book ever since I was either in high school or college. And I've read it many times, but I've always read it. Well, for the last 50 years, at least I've always read it to help other people. When I was a youth pastor, I would teach principles out of this book. I was asked to go and, and preach at the Wilds camp one year for Youth Workers Conference. I had the privilege of, of speaking to the, the people there. And then I had the privilege of going for a youth retreat and preaching for that youth retreat. You know, I, I, I mentioned how to know God's will for your life. And a lot of it came out of the principles from the scriptures from this book. And now you know I'm ready to retire, and I don't know what I'm going to do after I retire. That's a scary thought. It's pretty exciting in a way, and it's not exciting in another way. I want God's will for my life. I try to live a day at a time and do the will of God. And when God leads me to do something, I try to, by the grace of God, I'm determined to do that. And I've announced that uh, after I retire here, we have no plans to go anyplace. I still, people still don't believe that. I get asked every week, well, you're moving to Tampa, Florida, aren't you? I say, no. I've already said that in church. Yeah, I know, but I don't believe you. I said, well, I'm sorry you to stand up here and lie, okay? We have no plans to leave and move here and go to Tampa, Florida. Now, if we ever go there, it'll be because God gets us there between now and here, between now and then, but we have no plans to go to Tampa, Florida. You say, well, I think you're going to go to Arizona where it's... No, I'm not... I'm, listen, folks, we're not planning to go any place. Do you get that? <laughs> we're planning to stay right here. We're planning to be faithful in this church, and I will do whatever I'm asked to do Whatever I'm needed to do, uh, whatever opportunities are given to me, I believe I would say yes. And I would try my best to be uh, a help and a blessing to the new pastor and a blessing to the people here. That's, I believe that's God's will for my life. Then there are times when I say, I know it's time for me to leave here. I believe that's God's will. I have no doubt about that. It would be good for this church to have a younger man with all the demands of ministry. I believe that's the best thing. But I don't know if I'm ready to quit either. I want to keep preaching. I want to keep being involved in music. I want to keep talking to people. I just want to help in some way. So what am I going to do? I got thinking, you know what? You've been telling everybody else about this book and help people. Why don't you read it and help yourself? So I started doing that. I started reading this book. Just slowly reading this book for me. And as I'm reading this book, I'm thinking, whoa, this is really good. It's a short book. It's got, what, 125 pages maybe? 125, 126 pages. Short chapters. Chapter number, I've read the first four chapters already. In fact, I've read the first five. Chapter number one, God has a plan for his children. By the way, you, you can still get this now. You just go to Google and you, or go to Amazon, whatever. Anyway, it's 90 cents you can get the Kindle. I don't like Kindle stuff. It don't look spiritual to me. I got I to gotta have it right here. I got to have, have it on paper, okay? So you can probably buy this used someplace, you know, but you can get your Kindle for 90 cents. It's probably worth 90 cents. I'm sorry, okay? God has a plan for his, children, for his children's lives, chapter one. Chapter two, it is possible to miss God's will and plan. I think now God has a plan for his children's lives. Do you believe that? A detailed everyday plan. Number two, it is possible to miss God's will and plan. 
Chapter number three, to miss his plan is to miss the abundant life. Chapter number four, God desires to reveal his will to his children. And by the way, I'm trying not to say anything about these chapters, but I'll tell you that one. God wants you to know his will for your life more than you want to know it. God desires to reveal his will to your life, his will to his children. That's chapter four. I'm going to skip five. Chapter six through 12 in this book is really the heart of the book. Because chapter 6 through 12, they answer the question, okay, how can I know the will of God? And that's the big question. And there are a lot of people, in fact, I hope you don't succumb to this temptation. You say, well, you know what? I'm going to get that book. Hey, I got 90 cents. Sounds like it would be a good book for me. You get a little Kindle edition. You get your 90 cent thing. And you say, Pastor said, the heart of the book is chapter 6 through 10 or 12, how to know the will of God. That's all I care about. So why would I read the first five chapters? If you don't read the first five chapters, I'm telling you, 6 through 10 are not going to help you much. 6 through 10, whatever it was, 6 through 12. You've got to read the first five chapters. That's the key to the rest of it. Chapter 5 I read on Thursday of this week. By the way, after I read this one, I decided I'm getting this in the message on servants and masters, and you'll see why in just a moment. Chapter 5 is entitled, listen to this, The Fundamental Principle of the Christian Life. Chapter 5, the fundamental principle of the Christian life. It's only seven, and this is a little book, it's only seven pages long. But I'm telling you, those seven pages are worth a whole lot more than 90 cents. And that was on my mind all day today on Thursday. The fundamental principle of the Christian life. It's a message, it is so powerful, it is so powerful, it is so important. And it's not just for 77-year-old pastors who are going to retire and don't even know what they're going to do. It's for you, whoever you are, sitting in the pew tonight, and you need the will of God for your life today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next week and the next month. And maybe it does involve a career, your work, whatever else, but that's not the main issue. If you don't walk in the will of God today, you'll never find God's will tomorrow. So that's a tremendous important question there. Okay, what is the fundamental principle of the Christian life? Listen to this. This is how he begins the chapter. You say, why'd you put on your glasses? Because this is about 10 point. My notes are 16 point, okay? Here we go. Uh, where we go? Page 34. Listen to how he begins this chapter. Don't fall asleep. Listen now. What fundamentally is the Christian life? And what, after all, is a Christian to have the right attitude and relationship to the divine will of God, we must understand the basic principle of the Christian life and of our Christian living. The reason so many Christians are living below their privileges and out of harmony with the divine will is that they have never had a real grasp of the relationship they actually must bear to God. And the Christian life is basically a relationship with God. You understand that? The Christian life is basically a relationship with God. Being a Christian is in itself primarily a matter of being in the right relationship to God. It is not a matter of improving or changing the old life, but rather of receiving and entering into a new life. It is a new state of existence. Many things happen when a person gets saved. He is born again. He receives a new life. He's made a new creature. He's passed from death unto life. 
He becomes the temple of the Holy Ghost. He's redeemed. He's bought with a price. He becomes a son of God. He's a saint. He's a servant of God. He's an ambassador of Christ. He's a worker together with God. All those things I just read, they're all in quotation marks because they're all in the Bible. I'm sure you picked that up. All this is wrought in him by the operation of the divine grace and power, not by personal merit or effort. And the result of all is that the person now belongs to God. And the one purpose of his life should be to worship, love, honor, and serve him. We wish to pick out a single New Testament phrase that perhaps above all other singular phrases sets forth the basic principle of the Christian life and the spirit in which it should be lived. That is a powerful, powerful sentence. It's the basis of everything that follows in the rest of the book. Listen to this. We wish to pick out a single New Testament phrase that perhaps above all singular phrases sets forth the basic principle of the Christian life and the spirit in which it should be lived. It is an expression occurring and reoccurring throughout the entire book. It is the title that Paul loved above all others and attached to himself in almost every epistle. That phrase is the servant of Jesus Christ. It, it occurs variously. Sometimes the servant of God. Other times the servant of the Lord or his servant, etc. Here's his last sentence. In this expression lies the, lies, excuse me, in this expression lies hidden a truth that every believer ought to recognize and must recognize before he will get far in the matter of executing, of executing rather, the will of God. Again, it is an expression, the servant of Jesus Christ. In this expression lies hidden a truth that every believer ought to recognize and must recognize before he will get far in the matter of executing the will of God. And when I read that, I put a big star by it. And I said, Larry, don't ever forget that. If you want to know the will of God for your life, from now to the day you die, you better keep reminding yourself that the best phrase to summarize what Christian living is all about is, I am a servant of the Lord. Does that mean anything to you? I hope that just really grips your soul. And then he goes on in the rest of that chapter and he says, there's two things that characterize every servant of Jesus Christ. Two really simple things. First of all, he says, let me remind you that a servant in the Bible is not like the typical employee today. Well, how is he different? A lot of ways, but he mentions just one. The employee today agrees to be hired by somebody to do certain things, right? I'm hiring you to do this. And you have a certain amount of time that you do it in, and you receive an agreed-upon wage. He said that's not what we're talking about. The Greek word New Testament here is bondservant. It's doulos. Doulos, which means a bond slave, a bond servant. And so we see ourselves as a serving, as a servant of the Lord, our master. And what a wonderful, gracious, perfect master he is. And he said, if we're going to see ourselves as a servant before the master, then we better realize there are two things that characterize every single servant. And these things must characterize our life. Number one, the bond slave is a bought slave. He's been purchased with a price. You ever think about that? 
the bond slave is a, he, he's, he's a bought slave. He was bought, he was purchased. He was purchased with a price. He does not belong to himself. He doesn't belong to anybody else. He, belong, he belongs solely, only to his master who purchased him. That is the key to successful Christian living. That is the key to knowing God's will for your life, no matter what the, what the whole, whatever situation you're in. To think that God purchased me. And the price wasn't cheap. It was the blood of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now because that is true, I do not belong to myself. I don't own myself. My wife doesn't own me. My kids don't own me. My church doesn't own me. No, nobody owns me. Jesus Christ owns me because he bought me. Quickly, please, would you go to 1 Corinthians 6. I could quote these verses. Most of you could quote them too. But these are the key verses. I'll say just a couple of things and we'll go to our second point, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verses 19 and 20. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God? You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Would you look at that again? What? Do you not know? And the, the, the meaning here is, look, you do know, don't you? Of course you know. But he says, let me get your attention. What? Don't you know that your body is the abode, the dwelling place, the home of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, <coughs> which you have of God? And do you not know that you are bought with a price? You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Because that is true. Glorify God in your body and in your spirit. Next phrase, please, out loud. Did you get that again, please? Which are God's. You know what that means? My body belongs to God, so does yours. My mind belongs to God, so does yours. Whatever talents or gifts I have, they all belong to God, so do yours. Everything I possess, everything, it's really not my own. It all belongs to my master. Everything. Everything. Nothing left out. If you're a parent, you're children. You say, well, they're my kids. No, they're, they're really not yours. You're just stewards. God gave you those children. They're his. Everything, everything about us, it belongs to God. We're, not, we're bought with a price. And I don't think most Christians live with that in mind. I think we'd be surprised how few believers today actually live a day of their life thinking, you know what, I'm really not my own. I'm bought with a price. I don't belong to myself. Jesus bought me out of the slave market of sin. And if he had not done that, I would be on my way to hell, not even caring about the will of God. But he chose to save me. And the only way he could do that was, oh, you know Ephesians 1.7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. 1 Peter chapter 1, what is it, verses maybe 18 and 19? For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with silver and gold, these corruptible things, 
or vain conversation received from your father, the tradition of your fathers. But he says you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. That's a dear price that Jesus paid for me. And quite honestly, I don't deserve it. Do you? Do we deserve that? There's nothing about us that deserves that. But he chose to buy us out of the slave market of sin on the way to hell. And now doesn't it just make sense then that I realize, you know what? He owns me. So whatever happens in my life from now to the day I die, it's really, it's really not my choice. My wife and I talked about this. She didn't know I was preaching this tonight. We didn't talk about this part. But on the way home from church today, this morning, we talked about this. They say, you mean you and your wife talk about retiring? Every day, sometime, every day, every day, every day, many times during the day. Somewhere in that conversation, my wife said, you know, there's really no pressure. We believe it's God's will for you to retire. We believe it's God's will for us to stay right here. So where's the pressure? We stay here. We keep serving the Lord every moment of our lives. And if God wants us to go someplace, he'll show us. You believe that? I believe that. If he wants us to go someplace else and do something, then, then he can do that. But I'm not going to push myself to go someplace. I'm not going to dream, oh, yeah, I've always wanted to do this. I'll do this. Or, you know, maybe I'm not going on the Internet and, and, and tell the whole world that I'm available. I'm not doing that. If God wants us to go someplace for some reason, we are perfectly willing to go but if, if he doesn't, we just stay right here and keep doing the will of God. That's just, I don't know what else to do because I'm bought with a price. I'm not my own. And so I'm supposed to glorify God in my body, my spirit, which are God's. Dr. Weiss summarizes this point by saying this. It becomes a mere matter of honesty that that which belongs to the Lord by right of purchase should be yielded up to him by, will, by the willing choice and deliberate choice of the purchased possession. To me, that makes good sense. It becomes a mere matter of honesty that that which belongs to the Lord by right of purchase should be yielded up to him by the willing choice and deliberate choice of the purchased possession. And I'm telling you teenagers now, you're getting close to getting out of high school and you're thinking, well, what about college? Where am I, am I supposed to go to college? Where am I going to go? What am I going to major? What am I going to... Have you ever just asked God to show you because you belong to him? Or is it, I've said this many times, or is it says, you just want to go someplace and get a quick education and make a whole bunch of money and don't do anything. What a, what a sad, selfish attitude. Where's the blood of Christ? Where's the purchase? Because that characteristic of every slave is he was bought. He's a bought slave. He doesn't belong to himself. And number two, quickly, the bond slave has no, get this now, the bond slave has no will of his own, only the will of his master. This is a strong statement, but it's true. He's really not free to make his choices. Why? Because he's not the director of his life. The only choice that we really have is this question. What does God want me to do and will I do it? That's the choice. Will I be obedient to the Lord as he speaks to me? Or will I be selfish, rebellious, and say, no, I'm not interested in that. But as far as making choices... No, 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 no. We choose to obey the Lord. We choose to follow the Lord. We choose to be submissive to the Lord. We choose to live every moment of our life with this thought in mind. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Because you bought me, you own me. By the way, he created us too. And don't forget this, one day we will give an account to him. 
So we're really not free to choose our type of work, our place of residence. We go where the master sends us, and we do what the master tells us to do. And by the way, in Bible times, they got pretty specific here. The master even decided, <laughs> I hate going this far, but I'm just telling you, the, the, the master decided what time the slave went to bed. But that's tough for me. I think God would like me to go to bed earlier. I tried the other night. I got in bed. My wife and I talked for a while. And I said, you know, I looked at the clock. I said, 10.07. 10.07? You don't ever go to bed 10.07. It's like 12.07, okay? I said to my wife, I'm, I'm afraid to go to sleep now because I will wake up at 2 or 3 o'clock and ready to conquer the world. You know what I mean? Guess what? I woke up at 3.11. And from 3.11 to 6.30, it wasn't the happiest time of my life, Okay? But, you know, in Bible times, we talk about here, you know, it's like the master, uh, you know, slave tells it, time to go to bed. And by the way, he told him what, what time to get up in the morning, what to do as soon as he got up. The only reason I'm mentioning this tonight is because if we're not careful, Christians, when you talk about the subject of the will of God, it's all about career. It's all about my life's calling. Where are we going to live? What are we going to do? No, no, no. It's more important than this, Lord. What do you want me to do this morning? What do you want me to do tonight? What is your will for my life on a moment-by-moment -moment basis? That's what being a slave in the Bible was all about. What if every Christian thought about this and lived accordingly? What a huge difference that would make. I don't have time to, 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 to pursue this anymore. Maybe sometime later, if I'm going to be about within the next six weeks, if I'm going to do it, okay? But this will even affect stuff like your entertainment choices. Because every time you reach for that remote control, every time you grab your phone, every time you turn on the TV or the computer, to be a little entertained, you ought to be thinking. It's not like, where am I going to go to college? Or what am I going to do? Are we going to move next year? No, no, it's a matter of the Lord. What do you want me to do during the next hour or two or three? And you know, a lot of things you're thinking about, God would say that is not for you, and you know that. That's, that's what this is all about. So in closing tonight, does it sound unattractive? So I don't know if this sounds too exciting to me, man, as being a slave. Be a servant of the Lord? You know, live every moment of my life thinking, you know, I'm not my own. I'm bought with a price. I don't really have a will of my own. I'm, I'm, that's kind of scary. That's, that sounds like a dreadful way to live. No, it's the most wonderful way to live. I hope I don't get the wrong year now, but it's like somewhere around like 54 years ago. Okay, my wife and I stood at a Kansas City Baptist temple up there in the front of the church. Several hundred people coming to watch us get married. We exchanged vows. She was so excited, she started saying my vows. Right? You did that. She started saying my vows. Pastors, it's not your turn yet. She's pretty excited to marry me. No, I'm sorry. I'm joking. Don't, don't, no, don't, 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 okay? But we exchanged vows. You know what we did? We basically said, my past doesn't matter. You're all that matters. And I give you myself, and I will love you and meet your needs and cherish you until the day I die. So help me God. And by the way, we took those vows really seriously. We really did. And it hasn't been dreadful. It hasn't been painful. 
It hasn't been terrible. It's the most wonderful, exciting way to live. And if I had it to do over, I would choose the same person. I would ask her to marry me. She asked me, by the way, no, no not really. That's, I don't have time for that story. I got kind of talked into it in a roundabout way. She would tell you that, too. I mean, I had no choice but to say, sure, okay. I, I should finish the story. I don't have time because that sounds exaggerating. But anyway, we, we were in this thing together, okay. But I, I, I proposed, and then she accepted, and we got married. We said those vows, and it was the beginning of a wonderful, wonderful long marriage, a wonderful time together. And you know, it was the will of God for our lives. And there are some people here tonight that you, you probably would like to, you know, say your vows to the Lord and, so to speak, you know, tell them you, you, you want to give your life to him. And, and, and wherever it takes you, you will love him and serve him. And yet you think, well, that's kind of scary because God might have something terrible for me. He might just ruin my life, make me miserable. I don't want to live miserable. God will not make you miserable when you yield to him. You understand that? Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Bow your heads, please, if you will. Ephesians 6. Responsibilities of servants to their master. Responsibilities of master to their servants. And oh, how that reminds us that as Christians... We are bond slaves to Christ. It's a wonderful privilege. It really best summarizes what Christian living is all about. And I want to live like that. How about you? Father, we thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for each one who's come to the service. And I don't know what difference it's going to make in anybody's life. But I pray that you will help us to remember what we've seen tonight in your word. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God? You are bought with a price. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Would you help us to live like that? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand, please. Our pianist plays the verse of a song tonight. We close our service by the pastor encouraging you, inviting you, challenging you to pray about what you've heard. Just pray about the message you heard tonight. Would you do that? I don't have to tell you what to pray. You just pray about whatever God has put on your heart. If you ever want to share with me what you prayed, that's fine. I'm not even asking you to do that. But you talk with the Lord about what he's been talking to you about as our pianist plays. Would you do that? Brother Gross, would you close in prayer tonight, please, brother? I'd appreciate that very much. Thank you.